What defines success? You need to have the idea, you need to be early enough that you're novel, but not so early that the world doesn't get there in time. What happens when you get knocked down? Everyone has to tell me that I'm doing the wrong thing and making a mistake for me to believe that it's actually the right thing. What makes some people radiate? I believe that it's never too late to do something totally different, and I think that if you just hustle hard enough, you can, you can make things happen. This is Radiate. Hi, everyone. We're back. Welcome to the second season of Radiate, the show where we interview some of the world's most successful people to find out how they work their way to the top. We've got a great season ahead for you, and this week to kick things off, we're joined by John Steinberg, the former president of BuzzFeed. Yeah, you know, that's the place that brought you cat videos, food porn, the Try Guys, all sorts of other addictive content. Well, John helped steer the media company from a 15-person startup to one that's now valued at nearly a billion dollars. After leaving BuzzFeed, John headed the Daily Mail briefly before zeroing in on his next startup, Cheddar, a business channel for millennials. In this conversation, John talks about his upbringing, what's critical when building a business from scratch, and the importance of unique ideas. If you're thinking about starting a company, you've got to listen in. So here we go with John Steinberg. John? Betty? I'm so glad that you agreed to do this. It's great to be here. I don't know who should interview who, but <laughs> right. I guess we'll let you start off. Okay, so I guess I'm always in this seat, so I'll, so I'll start off on that. Okay. Um, all right, John, so you know this podcast is all about people's careers and you know the, the challenges they've had in their careers. I have to say, you're too young for me to say... You know, you're like still building your career no, I've and you've done so much. No, I've no, no. Challenges. Well, it's challenges, yeah. yes. But, yeah. you know, you've certainly created a lot and you've achieved a lot in your in your career and you're so young still. What do you think has been the secret for you? I think that I don't really think that that far into the future. Whenever somebody's asked me where, where I want to be in five or where I want to be in 10 years, I don't really have an answer for that. And I just think about one foot in front of the other. And I'm really good at what I call grinding. I'm a very anxious person and I also obsess a lot. So that's sort of how it's- What do you a, mean anxious? I'm, I'm worried about everything. And if, if I wanna do something, like I can't get it out of my head, it just sort of plays on a repeat track. Mm-hmm. Now that, that can like drive you crazy at times, but also if there's tasks that I wanna get done, if I wanna build something, if I wanna license a piece of equipment, if I wanna do a deal, um, it I can't stop thinking about it and pushing it a little bit forward. Now, when I was younger, that would have me like emailing people or calling them like 10 times in a day, you know, like when I was like in my early 20s or something like that. And did someone tell you to stop? Yeah, I mean, multiple times. I mean, <laughs> I, I had professors telling me to leave them alone, but you know, I, I but I learned oh. it. I mean, by the time I was like in my mid 20s, I had figured out how to like keep it to myself a certain amount. But, right. But, I know how to, but now I know how to balance it a little bit. So where does that come from? I mean, what was your childhood like? I think that my dad is that way. I mean, you know, my dad is a very. Uh, you what know, did your dad do? He's... Well, my dad's an amazing story, actually. Okay. My dad was a podiatrist. My dad grew up blue collar, um, you know, uh, modest modest means in Newark, New Jersey. Um, you know, first first member of his household to go to college, and his parents pushed him into being a doctor. He didn't want to be a doctor. Mm. We were living in New Jersey. He turned around thirty five. Said he always wanted to be a real estate broker, and he moved us all into New York left medicine and became a real estate broker at the age of 35. And today he's very successful at that. Wow. Yeah. So you think you've gotten, it sounds like you've gotten quite a bit of that from him then, right? Well, I believe, I believe in reinvention. I believe yeah. in reinvention and I believe that it's never too late to do something totally different. And I think that if you just hustle hard enough, you can you can make things happen. I mean, there's a, there's a Gary Vee element to that. Like I, can't, I do believe mm-hmm. that, you know, I do believe that like the harder I work, the luckier I get. But I do think that 
I do think that like luck plays an enormous role in these things too. Did you know you'd always be in media? I always loved media. I always loved technology. I mean, you, we'll probably get to this at some point. I always wanted to be a Disney Imagineer. That's all I ever wanted to do is draw. Well, you were in their Imagineers I, I was, camp, I, right? I, 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 there was actually not even a camp. I just became an intern. I wrote them in kind of an unsolicited letter through a dial-up bulletin board system that they had established to recruit people at the age of 15. And I got an internship at Disney Imagineering. So I always knew that I was obsessed with Imagineering, which is basically imagination um, and engineering. This kind of this kind of mix between, you know, I guess what Steve Jobs would call like, you know, liberal arts and science. That, mm -hmm. that kind of crossroads was always what interested me. Interesting. And yeah. then what did you learn when you, went, when you became an intern? The best thing I learned is I worked for this guy, Dave Fink, who ran research and development. And I got out there and the first few days I found where my desk was and I got a Mac and then I went to him and I said, what am I supposed to do? And he looked at me and he said, Jonathan, I went by Jonathan up until the age, it was actually an interesting topic too, up until the age of about uh, you know, 28, everyone called me Jonathan. Oh really? Yeah. Well, and then what happened? Well, that's I want to hear story. this story. No, wait, wait, tell me this story though. Now we're going to branch into that story? <laughs> But let me finish this. Okay, finish, finish okay. that one. And Dave says, Jonathan, he goes, if I knew what you should do, uh, I wouldn't have hired you. I would have just done it myself. And that was like an amazing revelation. The other thing he wow. taught me was I went to on a trip with them to the Silicon Graphics campus. And this was sort of the late 90s when Silicon Graphics was at the apex of its power. It did the, the, um, the graphics for Jurassic Park. Mm -hmm. It's on the campus where Google now is. Wow. And I was overwhelmed and I was nervous. And he said to me, these people aren't smarter than you. They just know things that you don't know. And if you study those things, you could know those things too. So he, he was very encouraging in a way where I felt like, well, I got to figure things out. I got to learn things. Why did I go by, um, why did I switch from going by Jonathan to John? I was constantly, ha my mom always wanted everyone to call me Jonathan. And people were always calling me John. And I would correct them and say, no, it's Jonathan. And what I realized was at a certain point, when people want to call you by like a, a short name, they they feel friendly towards you, they feel affection towards you, they feel a closeness, and you telling them no, call me by the former name, formal name, is mm -hmm. basically you saying to them, I don't want your friendship, I don't want to be close to you. Hmm. And what's interesting is I did this, actually I did this article for LinkedIn, I went through I think the Fortune 50 or the Fortune 100 or something, and almost everybody goes by a nickname or a short, like a short name, a name that's like five characters. Jack Welch, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Reed Hastings, even though Reed is a formal name, it's a you know it's it's four characters, right? It's very rare that you find somebody with a formal name um, that runs one of these large companies. So I, I just figured that's you, interesting. It is interesting. Mark Zuckerberg, right? Uh, you know, you, you know, you, you, it's like that friendly connectedness to people. Is that what it? Was that yeah, what, yeah, that's what it felt. And you know, look, I mean, part of me is it is it pandering? Is it trying to like you know give into the corporate establishment to let people call you by these names? You know, I struggle with that a little bit, but ultimately, I netted out on it that that if people want to be close to you and they want to give you a term of affection, which effectively what a nickname is, that it's, it's off-putting to tell them no. I, I got a friend whose name is is uh, Michael Bassick. He works at MDC Partners, the ad agency, and I used to always call him Mike because I just like him. I just called, I'm really cool. I call him Mike. And he would always tell me, no, call me Michael. And finally I said, you know, you're, you're basic. I told him this whole thing. And now he goes by Mike. He lets people call him Mike Bassick. So I've converted people. <laughs> so on you're going around converting people's names. Look, you, I mean, look, your name, your name, Betty, right? That, that's, a, that's what I would qualify as a, as a nickname or a short nickname like name, right? Right, right. I met another Betty yesterday, by the way. You know, there's probably a lot yeah. of people that, that when you interview, it, it puts them at ease. They feel comfortable. Right. They feel like, you know, if, if your name was Beatrice, it, there's a formality to that. Um, that I think makes people stand off a little bit. Uh, I like, so, but how about you internally? Do you feel like a John or do you feel like a Jonathan? I feel like a Jonathan. You feel like a Jonathan? I feel like a Jonathan, I do. You know, I think, I, I feel like, uh, you know, 
But what does Jonathan I think like, symbolize a, I, to you? I, to me, I feel like I'm an eccentric person. I always feel like I'm on the outside. And I think that I think that Jonathan is is the, sort of the name of an outsider. There's probably Jonathans listening to this podcast that are, that are that are like really put <laughs> off by that. But I don't know. But it, it's a long name. It's a it's a sort of a formal name. Um, is know. that why your mother wanted people to call you Jonathan? I think so. I think she thought it was the name that she had given me. You know, the irony is that that my middle name is Ian. I was almost named Ian after my grandpa Irving. And in many ways, I'm like my grandfather Irving. He was an entrepreneur. He operated um, warehouses for Chiquita Bananas, also in Newark, New Jersey. Um, and so, like, you know, I never met him. He died before I was born. But I was almost named Ian. And Ian is what I would qualify as a short hmm. nickname-like name. You definitely have a family with interesting careers, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That sounds that 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 sounds fascinating. Uh-huh. Um, okay, so but you did go into an interesting career. You you know an interesting job. A BuzzFeed was that? I mean, that was not your first job, was it? It was. It was an amazing, lucky um, bet that Jonah and they they Jonah Peretti and everybody put on me or, or gave to me. Um, and how old were you when you got the job? Oh God, so that was 2000, 2010. So now we're in two thousand seven. So seven years ago, I guess. Uh, Call it. I'm um, 38 now. Early 30s. Okay. Yeah, I'm 38 now. Okay, so you had you had a little bit of a career before that. Yeah, but I've been you know a very very mid level employee at Google. Um, you know, I, I joke around now when I get to interact with like senior people from Google, uh, like Tim Armstrong or even Jared Gruce, who's one of my really good friends, who is a mm-hmm. senior lawyer at Google. I'm like, oh my god, when we were at Google, they wouldn't even let me breathe the same air that you guys were breathing, you know? And that ultimately was what frustrated me about Google. And now they're like, hey, John. Well, you know, but you know, the, I think in Google's old age, I mean, that's what Google became what I what I called a tenureocracy, which was whoever there was longest got sort of the next seat up. And I think that when, when Larry took over, there was a certain amount of correction that went on for that, but it was mm-hmm. a very, very hierarchical place. I know that that's sort of contrarian to say about Google, but I certainly always felt that No, way. but actually that, that's a very fitting thing to say about Google or any really big company, right? Yeah. I mean, even a Facebook or an Apple or yep. a Microsoft in particular is that when companies get bigger, they get more bureaucratic. I mean, mm-hmm. do you feel like you're someone who could never really thrive in a big company? I think that I learned a lot at Google. I think I, think I could thrive in a big company. And I think that I, I know how to navigate. There's probably people who know how to navigate it much better than me. And at different times in my career, I've liked working with a small team and I've liked working with a larger team. When I joined BuzzFeed, I was the 15th employee. Um, basically, the second business employee, Eric Harris, was a guy there that was doing um, a lot of the business and operational stuff. He ended up being an amazing partner for me uh, for the whole time that I was there. Um, but I loved being at that small team when BuzzFeed got to, I don't know, four or 500 people, which was the time that I left. I loved that challenge. I loved the idea of delegation. I loved the idea of mentorship. You know, the mentorship thing is something that I really, I really found that I loved because I needed it so badly all throughout my career, and I always needed mm. it in such specific things, which was what do you do with a mid-level, um, a, a mid, mid-performing employee? It's very easy what to do with an outperformer, and underperformer. What do you do with a mid-performer? How do you handle certain bonus and comp things? How do certain HR things get dealt with? How do you, how do you do a reorg? Right. Right. These were all things that I desperately wanted somebody to teach me. So when I meet with entrepreneurs now and I work with them and they say to me, what do you think we should do with the product? How should we do this? How should we, how should, what, what, what color should this be? I always say to them, I don't know. I didn't build your business, so I can't help mm. you with that. What I can help you with is how to hire and build a sales force, how to structure a support organization. Right. Because that's the stuff that's sort of timeless and never, and never changes. And I, I'm happy to do that for, for them because um, I want people to do it for me. And what goes around comes around. I really believe what goes around comes around. Well, you know, I mean, I, I haven't known you that long, John, but yeah. I remember I was really struck when I first met you. Yeah. 
how many people you put me in contact with, yeah. right? And yeah. how you helped. And I even said to you, I said, I'm surprised. I mean, I hardly even know you. Yeah. You're already helping me. Well, so you do walk that talk. Yeah. I mean, karma is an amazing force. You know, I mean, I had, I, I have an amazing mentor and friend, a guy named Jerry Spire, who's a, a real estate developer in New York. Um, I worked for him out of college. We did a real estate startup together. And, you know, Jerry was was very big on, on, on kind of putting into me this idea of reputation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you talk to anyone in New York City or basically anyone in the world about Jerry Spire. And I've never, every word comes back unbelievably positive. Everyone has something positive to say about Jerry, even if they were on the other side of a deal from him. Right. And I think people would say that about me. I think there's been people who've been on the other side of something from me and felt, you know, that, that at least it was handled the right way. Right. And... Even if not the outcome that they wanted. You know, you yeah. know, and, I, and I feel that way about, and there's a lot of people that I feel that way about. Um, now, you mentioned when you were at Google, so yes. you were a mid-level employee. Yes. And would you call yourself, were you an outperformer then or or you hadn't really struck out? I don't know. I mean, I, I think I was, I think I performed well there. They would probably say that I didn't do everything I was supposed to do and, you know, and didn't, I mean, I, I just, I always had a hunger for growth, right? And I was in a unit that was doing small and medium business partnership deals. We would okay. go and get yellow page companies to sell AdWords to small businesses. Did you like that? I, I liked it. I, you know, I loved the team that I worked on and I think we put up great numbers. And I think that Google had some ambivalency around how they felt about having a channel program at the time, wholesaling AdWords. Um, but I felt, and I felt like I did some great deals there, but I felt like no matter what I did, um, I couldn't see I couldn't see where it was going. Right, mm. I, I couldn't see where it was going for the company. I couldn't see where it was going in terms of my career trajectory. And ultimately, I felt like so you were frustrated. I was frustrated, yeah. But I'm always frustrated, basically. Okay, but yeah, at, at least at that point, you were frustrated. I was frustrated. And you made yeah. a move. And I made a move, and it was an amazing. It was you know, it was an amazing situation. I, I was at a, a VC firm. I uh, did an entrepreneurship in residence in EIR for Polaris in New York. Um, we looked at BuzzFeed. I met with Jonah. Jonah and I spent time thinking through his vision. I spent time listening to his vision and mapping out what it would look like as an investment case. And Jonah closed his round with RRE, ultimately not with, with Polaris. And he said to me, um, you know, what do you think of coming here and being um, the business employee and, and building the revenue and doing that? And um, it was a contrarian thing to do at the time. Everybody mm -hmm. told me, um, you know, BuzzFeed was unproven, who knew where it was going, you shouldn't do this, you should stay at the VC firm, you should become a VC partner. Um, but I, I knew Jonah was one of a kind, I knew Ken Lair was one of a kind. These were two people who had built the Huffington Post. Right. No one else had built a standalone media. They were media proven. Business. They were yeah. proven, right? Yeah. And I thought I'm getting opportunity op offered the opportunity of a lifetime here. So, you know, the one thing I always tell people is, if I really do believe everyone has to tell me that I'm doing the wrong thing and making a mistake for me to believe that it's actually the right thing. If everyone tells you, oh, you're doing the, the right way, thing. By the way, do you carry that with you in other aspects? Like let's say investing or let's say buying a house. I, I don't know, I, I, you know? I, I try to carry with me even in parenting. I went to my son's um, parent-teacher conference and they said, wow, he's doing great. He's a lovely young man. He treats everybody with kindness and respect, but he spends a lot more time on the tasks that he likes. And if he's doing a task that he doesn't like, he tries to find a way to skip the steps to get right to the end step so he can complete the assignment. And I said, wow, that sounds amazing. I think he's doing great. And, and, they, they, and they, said, they said, well, I guess that's a higher level of, of logic. And so I try, to, I try to question these things, you know? When we went to go do all the private school interviews, you know, my parents and my wife had to sort of like, you know, step on my foot a little bit because I, I wanted to be a little bit uh, provocative in my questioning you of to them. Dig, I want to dig in a little, dig bit. A little bit. You know, yeah. like, I mean, you know, I, I think that people should focus on what they love, and I'm, I'm, you know, I don't want my kids to go to college, right? So, I mean, I try to have unconventional wait, thoughts. Wait, hang on, you what? You don't, I don't want the kids to go to college. You I don't, don't want your kids to go no, to college? I no, I don't really think so. I think, I think if they, if they love scholarship, 
and they want to learn. And one of my children were to come to me and said, I want to learn about classics. I want to learn about engineering. I want to be a doctor. That I get. If they came to me at the age of 18 and said, I don't really know what I want to do, or, or, or I, want to, I want to be an entrepreneur, I want to do this or that, and, but I feel like going to college for a vacation for four years to sort of figure it out, I think it's a very expensive and also not necessarily the most directed way to spend four years. I, 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 I think it's a little hmm. bit of a, I, I don't quite get the deal. It doesn't strike me as a good deal anymore. Um, and have you told them this? Yeah, I've told them that. Okay, and how old are they though? First, they're 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 six and seven. They're fifteen okay. months apart. Okay, and you know, it's funny. You know, it's like my son is the one who says, "No, I don't want to go to college, but I want to make robots." I said, "Well, Cooper, if you want to make robots, that actually <laughs> you have to go, you to, have to, go to college for, right?" <laughs> so then he like he gets that. Like my daughter's one who says she wants to go to college, and you know, she wants to, but I think my wife is sort of more kind of you know. Is this just your her. way of not funding a big college bill for two kids? Yeah, or, or but I, I I'd want Are to invest. Are you buying a vacation I'll, home no, but somewhere? I'll, but I'll invest in their company, right? I mean, right. I, I would give them the capital to do to do that. I mean, look how many people have knocked on to college and done remarkable things. Now, right. if you want to like, but you went to college, of course. I went to college, but you know I. I think I messed up that decision to a certain extent. You know, I had two options. I could have gone to, I got into Stanford and I could have continued my internship with Disney if I had gone to Stanford. Um, and at the last minute, I decided I didn't really want to move that far away from home because I'm very close to my family. And I chose to go to Princeton. Now I loved Princeton. It was a good place. I learned a lot. But, you know, if I had been out at Stanford, I would have been exposed to all that stuff in the oh. Valley earlier. And I think I should have been out there. You know, I probably would have gone out there for two years, dropped out and been part of something. And maybe, you know, not even the money, maybe it wouldn't have worked out, but that was always the stuff that I loved. That's yeah. where I should have been, you know? So let's get back to BuzzFeed okay. now and talk about your career there. So when you first joined up with Ken Lair and Jonah Peretti, did you ever think, well, did BuzzFeed at that time, did you think that it was going to be the BuzzFeed that it is now? No, no, of course not. No, no one envisioned something. I think if you... If you envision something, if you claim that you envision something being that successful, um, or even the way it looks, no, right? and the no, way it no, operates. no, and that was, and 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 you know, there were so many instrumental moments and decisions, and m many of which I wasn't part of. I mean, when I look back on it now, the most miraculous thing to me was what an amazing team and how the team fell into place and how we all worked so well together. Um, and that that was, you know, lucky and work that that ended up being the way it is. But no, no, I don't think anyone imagines. Um, you know, something that gets to that point with that many employees in that scale when it's yeah. when, it, when you're 15 people in a small office on Spring Street. Right. Okay. But, but actually, you know, I, I, one of the stories I love telling is I went to Jonah during one of the early months. I think it was my first month there. And I said, um, if I have no revenue this month and I come to the board meeting, is that going to be bad? Zero revenue. And he said, I don't think, I remember like it was yesterday. We were walking, we were walking back from this place that had, had bibimbap, bibimbap, you know? Bibimbap. Bibimbap. Yes. And, uh, Korean food. Yeah. And he said, I don't think it'll be bad, but I think it'll be better if you had $50,000 in revenue. And then he told me a story uh, that Kenny had told him, which is if you try to get to the top of the mountain and you say, I'm going to get to the top of the mountain, it's too high. If you say, I'm going to get to this little peak. And then mm -hmm. once I get to that little peak, I'll get to the next little peak, then it's attainable. And so what I always say is, remember when someone says, I got to get to $10 million in revenue. I thought in my early days at BuzzFeed, how do I get to $50,000 a month? Hmm. And what do I do that is ethical, legal, and doesn't screw up the company to get to $50,000 a month in revenue? And those are actually still three rules I use today. 
Is it ethical? Is it legal? And does it not screw up the company? Those are sort of my revenue generation I love that, rules. though. Yeah. It's like the things you avoid, and right. then you're free to do everything else. And you're free to do everything else. And then with it, right, and actually, it, it does, it really creates very good, very good guardrails for an organization. And I repeat that all the time, because I think it lets people kind of think outside the box without blowing themselves up a little bit, you know? How did you guys figure out your consumer so well at BuzzFeed? Like, how did that work? You know, that's that, that's really Jonah. I mean, I, you know, I've always been sort of the business and the monetization person. I mean, he had this this bet, this instinct that social traffic was going to take over the world. Right. And and he started on that journey well before that even happened. And the world met up with his vision at a certain point. And there's a lot of examples of like this that occur in nature. I mean, Netflix is sort of like that to a certain extent too. They had this view that everybody would want to get their programming mm-hmm. over the internet, that they'd want to watch it on demand. And broadband speeds and devices caught up and, and met them in the middle. And that's you know, that's what you really need to happen, I think, for a new company or a new idea. You need to have the idea, you need to be early enough that you're novel, but not so early that the world doesn't get there in time. And a lot of the ideas now that are working with the internet that failed during the bubble, the dot com bubble, were it things was bad that timing. It was bad timing. These right. were, were fundamentally bad. I mean, think ideas. about even the tablet, right? I mean tablets had been around for a while, but it just and smartphones. Even yeah, right? and, and it just wasn't the right. And, time. and also, you know, even you think back to Webvan. Um, That's right. You know, you, you could argue maybe they made some management missteps or something like that, but fundamentally, that's like Fresh Direct or even Amazon exactly. same day. And, exactly. You know, maybe if Jeff Bezos had been running it, it would have been a different story. <laughs> I don't know. Um, okay, so well then, let's get to the part that you really control, which is and you know well, which yes. is revenue, right? So you mentioned that story. I mean, you know, let's take it from there. Like, how did you then go okay. from zero revenue to just so, that fifty thousand? So they had already run on. The, they had these yellow units, which are kind of the the sponsored content units now, and they had already run a few campaigns in there. Um, actually one for Comedy Central, another for a liquor brand. And we were deciding what would be the model. And I, and at first I thought maybe publishers could pay for those units. And then I realized, well, the publishers don't have nearly as much money and need as the brands do. Mm. And then we decided, uh, you know, we decided to call them story units and we decided to make an orderly system for charging for people to be able to um, to purchase them. Right. And, we, and, then, and then we decided, well, the brands don't have these creative services, so let's start providing the creative services to the agencies and brands so that they can create this content. Um, and then we decided, well, nobody else is doing this. We're doing this at a scale. Uh, that's wrong. Other people were doing it, but no one was really betting their company on it. Right. Nobody was making it their sort of raison d'etre, their soul. We said, let's not do display. Let's do just this. Let's bet the company on it, and let's let's be focused and push incredibly hard on it. And there's two lessons in that. First is you really can. It's true. You can only do one thing. You can only have one product that you're really pushing incredibly hard on. Mm. And the other thing is I truly believe you've got to be doing something that nobody else is doing. And you know, so many of the companies now that are trying to copy somebody else's playbook, it's not just that that's lame, it's just that it never works. If, if you Do you go, roll your eyes when you see that? Yeah, I mean, and you're, you're like, that's wasted money you know, down the I, toilet. When I look now and I see all these companies going into branded content and native advertising, many of the traditional ones that, that said they would never do it because they thought that it would have these problems and it wasn't right and it would confuse readers and you know, and now that they're all going into it, you know, they're of course doing what incumbents do, which is they're going into something, you know, ten years That's, later, yeah. right? Um, and but do you the, think there's no future then, in, or, or do you think the future is limited in branded and sponsored content? I, I think I think the future 
is is limitless in terms of what people can imagine. And, and I, you know, I thought of one model. I worked with a team that thought of one model for that. Um, and there's other models that people just need to think of. But saying I'm just going to do somebody else's model, I'm going to copy it, and I'm going to try to do it late. It's lame. It does. It just doesn't work. I mean, the only you can think of counterexamples. You can think of okay, well, Apple went into the the smartphone market and the tablet market late and won, right? right? But Apple is such an outlier compared to everything else. I think most of the times when you're copying somebody else's playbook, um, it doesn't work out well for you. I actually, if you want to take something, you know, virtual reality is something I've never done anything in, right? Mm -hmm. New York Times has made this bet on virtual reality. Mark Thompson, the CEO, came out and said that it's already profitable. To be honest, I didn't read the article. I just saw the headline. Um, but they're doing something totally different there. That, that shipping out the cardboard thing. Have I you mean, tried it, by the yeah, way? Yeah, I have tried it. I and did you like it? I thought it was pretty good. I, I think I think it, for a piece of cardboard that you put your smartphone in, I think it works remarkably well. I'll tell you, my kids think it's amazing. So, mm. um, so we'll see, right? So we'll see, I mean, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's it's something that's be, a little bit different. Got to be a little. You got to be doing something different. And it's surprising that New York Times is doing that, right? Yeah, and that, that's and traditionally and that's, old and media that's, company. And that's, and that's sort of my point. I actually think that I think New York Times is a good example for a few other things. They also came out with this um, idea of of day parting. Yes. And putting units in that are day part and they call them like mobile moments or something like that. I think that's clever too. You you gotta be you gotta be inventing something new. Um, you can't just sell the same thing to to people that are already buying it from somebody different. So John, what happened at BuzzFeed? Why did you leave? You know, look, I it's so funny, I haven't been asked that question. I thought people had tired of asking that question, you know. I'd been there four years, it was an amazing experience. I took it from, you know, with Joan and the rest of the team from 15 to 500 people into a big revenue business. And I wanted to do, I wanted to do something else, you know, and ultimately, um, you know, that's just John, part of my tell DNA. tell me the real reason. What's no, no, the no, real no, reason? No, that really, you know, honestly, that really is, that really is the real reason, you know? I mean, it, it was an amazing run. It was an amazing period. And there was other people to, to take it to the, the level after that, you know? But did you end up having disagreements with management and the board? No, no, no. Because that there, is, by the way, what sometimes happens, no, right, but, as companies get... But also, I'll tell you something. The, the amazing thing is that, you know, Businesses have businesses, especially high growth businesses, have periods of time where where you're the right person for them. And the amazing part about it was that I actually that it worked for me to be the right person in years one, two, three, and four. Remember, I was literally doing the decks myself, yes, um, and doing all the sales calls myself. And then at a point, we were managing an organization that had hundreds of people. What's more amazing is that I was still there in year three and year four to me because I, I had when to continue. When sometimes people leave I, I, already no, by I, then. No, I had, to, I had to like reinvent myself, you know, rechange my skill set. Yeah. So that's kind of more surprising to me. So it's always, the other thing too is it really is a New York attitude about why did you leave after four years, right? right? Silicon Valley, this question never gets asked. I actually think it's a big problem in New York, which is that we don't have this moving around, that it's so... Um, people take such heat when they go from one place to another. Right, like Whereas in the what valley, happened What there? happened? There's a thousand questions. I yes. mean, I, you know, what's amazing is the day that I left, there was a high profile, I can't. I wish I could remember who was, a, a person higher profile than me that went from Facebook to Twitter, I think, or something like that. Nobody asked any questions. Nobody <laughs> cared. That's what happened in Silicon Valley. Look, I think we got to correct that about New York. Um, right, because implicit in that question is, oh, John, like, did something happen? Like, was there a falling out? You know, all of that, right? I mean, of course, implicit I mean, in look that at, question. I mean, look at, I mean, you know, did Sheryl Sandberg have a falling out at Google or David Fisher or Grady right. Burnett? Or, I mean, you know, should I rattle off 14 more people that went from Facebook to, went from Google to Facebook? How about all the, the Facebook people that went to Twitter or the, <laughs> right. or, you, you know, I mean. Agree. Okay, so we, we, we talked to, so every person we've talked to um, for this podcast, we've asked, like, what are their worst moments in their career, right? Yeah. So, um, so we've kind of gone through your whole entire trajectory so far. So what, 
John, has been your worst moment in your career? I think my worst moment was I had this Disney internship at a very young age. I went to college and then I did a startup after college that didn't work out. And at that point, I turned around and I went back to business school. And suddenly, having been special in my teens, having had this amazing Disney you know, internship and being like a wonderkind, I was suddenly like, I suddenly had nothing, right? I was just this guy who had done a startup that had failed and was now at business school like everybody else. Mm. And my entire life having everyone tell me like I was unique and special for having done this, I certainly wasn't special, right? I, I suddenly felt not special. And I didn't know where to go from there. I was almost like a child actor who whose show goes off the air. And I think that was tough for me to figure my way out of. And I think I had a lot of, I, I was a consultant at Booz Allen and then I worked at, you know, there was a period of years where I felt like, well, I'm never going to be able to do anything that's really cool. That yeah. Disney was the coolest thing I ever did, and that's over. And now it's just sort of like, you know, random stuff I'm going to have to do from here on out. Hmm. So that was so depressing. It's, it's like a fear. Like a, you had this fear of being just this average person doing average things. Yeah, I mean, that makes it sound even – I mean, I just, I just felt, I felt like I had a fear that it wasn't going to be that interesting from here on out. Like it was just going to be – Like real, is this it? Is this it? Right, is this it? I think I felt like, well, is this it, right? And the worst thing was I was doing this thing with Booz Allen where I was working in northern Virginia on this project, and I would fly in Monday morning. I would work in this government building. Then I would go back to my hotel at night, do more work and eat and go Sounds to sleep awful. and get up. And then, <laughs> and then I was like – I, I, this, I was like, oh my God, how did this, how did this end up like this, right? And and, and everything started out so bright, and now it was so dim. And um, <laughs> I'm in Virginia. I'm in, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing this thing, and, and and also all the people that I'm working with think that I'm terrible at this job because, like, you know, <laughs> it, 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 and the, I joined Booz Allen to work in their media practice. There was no media jobs in 2003, mm. and they were like. You've never had a driver's ticket. You've got a perfect record. I have a perfect record because I grew up in New York and I don't really drive that much. And <laughs> and they're like, so you go work for the government. And I was like, oh, like you can work for the government or you can not have your job. How does that sound? I'm like, okay, I guess I'm going to work for the government. <laughs> that was the low point and of my career. That was a low point. Um, and, and early on, you said something like, you know, you're a worrier, right? That you worry a lot. Yeah. So is that in a way a motivating, um, a motivating sort of like characteristic for you? No, I think it's just a negative. I think it's a negative. I think that, but I think that you know, everybody looks around and thinks everybody else is is you know doing great and everything's perfect. But do you feel that way too? No, I don't because I I have things that bother me all the time and I and I'm worried all the time. And I think that it makes me recognize in other people a, a humanity that's other that certain people aren't able to recognize. Right? Mm-hmm. Certain people, you know, I would often deal with with salespeople putting together a pitch, and they would it would be like thirty pages long and really buried and you know, I, I would say to them, the person reading this is looking at 50 of these. They got into work. They had a problem with their kid. They've got this health-related thing going on. They've got this financial, personal thing going on. And th- this is not the focus of their life, right? And so I think that's helpful. I think I'm good at seeing things through, seeing things through in other people's shoes. That's not, I mean, it's empathy, yeah. right? It's having that empathy. Yeah. yeah. E- e- I mean, EQ is what some people call it, Right. right? I mean, probably saying that I feel like I have high EQ is like the least EQ thing that you can possibly say. Um, but I don't think I have high EQ. But I think that through my own, I think that through, I think that through my own difficult lens of seeing the world, I can relate to other people's difficult lenses. I think that everybody walks around and thinks I'm the only person with problems and worries, 
and everybody else is having this perfect life. And which that's is not true. which is not true, right? Which is not true. And the people that you think that that are like the smoothest ducks sailing a, a, across the water are frantically paddling. Um, so, so I think true. it puts a perspective, you know. And do, and is there one thing that you worry about all the time, or is there like? You know, is there one negative thing that you feel like you just haven't been able to shake? No, I think it's everything. I mean, I think that you worry about your job, or you worry about your kids. Like, I worry, worry about, about deals. I worry about jobs. I worry about, um, I mean, just you know, everything under the possible sun. You know, I mean, so and I, but I think a lot of people do actually. Next week on Radiate, a good friend of the show, Muhammad El Arian, like you've never heard him before. One of the smartest economists in the world fesses up to his own career mistakes and gives some valuable life lessons. Now before we go, please do me a favor and log on to our new website, radiateinc.com feedback. And please take our survey. I'd love to hear your thoughts, your opinions, ideas on what we're doing. We've got exciting new things in store and your feedback will be critical in helping me shape what's to come. If you liked what you heard on the podcast, also please review us on iTunes and find me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks for joining us. I'm Betty Lou. Talk to you next week on Radiate.